0: and welcome to the Big Picture Seminar Series. My name is Luai Rasmagel. I'm the External Relations Manager of the Victoria Research Lab. So it's my great pleasure to welcome you here this evening. The purpose of the Big Picture Seminar is really to provide the public with an opportunity to uh, hear from people who are shaping our technology future. And uh, this evening we're, we're very pleased to hold this same here at RMIT University. RMIT is uh, a, a Part of the University of uh, NICTA here in, in Melbourne, so we're very pleased to have the opportunity to uh, uh, provide this uh, seminar here at the university. Uh, it's my uh, pleasure to invite Dr. Fabio Zambetta from the School of Computer Science and IT at RMIT University to introduce our speaker. Please welcome Fabio. Good evening, everybody. Um, It is my great pleasure to have here Ken Stelly, Associate Professor um, in the Department of Computer Science, UCF, University uh, University of Central Florida, um, where he heads the uh, EPLEX, Evolutionary Complexity Research Group. Um, He's going to talk about discovery without objectives tonight. Uh, We're very pleased to have him here. Um, I'd like to acknowledge support from our great sponsors, NICTA, um, of course, and Adelaide uh, as well as ACM through the uh, Distinguished Lecture uh, Program. So, without further ado, um, give you a chance, Okay. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really happy to have this opportunity to share my work with you, and uh, I. Um, I was asked by ACM to let you know that uh, the Distinguished speaker Program has helped to sponsor and uh, of course appreciate their contribution and also appreciate the contribution I it as well to make this possible. So, here's something that you may have been told. You may have been told that if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. And you may not have known who said this, but actually it's Marty McFly. He said this in Back to the Future. Um, but I think a lot of us believe this, that if we set an objective and then we put our mind to it, and we try hard and put our passion into it, we can accomplish what we set out to accomplish. But my message to you today is going to be, unfortunately, that this is not true. I <laughs> know so, it's a little bit depressing, but I don't mean to depress you too much because I actually have some good news as well, and the good news that I would hope to convince you of as well. To provide actually scientific evidence for both these things, is that if you do not put your mind to it, then you can <laughs> do it. <laughs> even if I was slightly wrong. Uh, but this is more accurate. And I will try to convince you of this. And so, what am I really talking about? I'm talking about these ideas of innovation, creativity, discovery, the way that we have to achieve things uh, as human beings. Our forms, you could say, call this of search. And when you talk about search, the reason I like to think of it as a search, you can think of it as something that occurs in a search space. And if you think about this space, it's like the space of all possible artifacts of a certain type. Like the space of all possible images, and that is the space that is searched by artists. And the space of all three-dimensional morphologies might be the space that is searched by sculptors or architects. Er, There's the space of all possible combination of words, and that's of course the space that's searched by authors. And if you're an artificial intelligence researcher, then in effect what you're searching when you create artificial intelligence algorithms is the space of all possible minds. And so different areas where people are trying to be creative, where people are trying to achieve great things are searching in these spaces, and you can think of these almost as existing physically, like you can imagine some huge room, the room of all possible images. Just stacked with images all throughout, and the thing about these spaces, these search spaces, is that they are largely desolate. Which is why we are so excited about great achievement, because if you think, for example, about the space of all possible images, 99.999999% are complete garbage. They're just television screens tuned to the wrong channel with static on the screen. I mean, that's most possible images. The images that are of interest to us are some tiny minority in them percentage of those that are masterpieces are yet again another tiny minority of those and so finding these gems really is finding needles in a haystack that's what achievement is about it is finding a needle in a haystack because most of the stuff out there is not that interesting now the way that this happens and part of the story of achievement is that the mind the human mind is a really powerful search operator so if I think about these things as processes of search or searching for some kind of great masterpiece in some space you're using your mind and your mind guides you through the search space in different ways depending on your expertise. And yes, our mind is a powerful search operator. And this is why we actually are able to sometimes find these needles in the Hsta. What I want to talk to you about is how that process actually happens, and I'll hope to convince you that it doesn't happen the way that a lot of us think it does. So what I want to do now is preview my argument for you. This is going to be something counterintuitive, um, but I think it certainly at least will provoke a lot of discussion. Um, my claim is going to be that highly ambitious objectives ultimately block their own achievement in other words, probably not a good idea if you have a really ambitious objective to actually try to achieve it and the greatest human achievements are not the result of objective optimization which means, by objective optimization I mean setting an objective and then trying to measure progress and get closer and closer to that objective and eventually achieving it That's kind of mythology behind objectives, that's how we think achievement works, often, but my claim is that is not how achievement works, that's not the true story. In fact, all of search, these processes where you're looking for something, these huge spaces, is cloaked in some kind of futility, in the sense that there is no method that will ever be made, or that exists today, that will allow us to make finding what we want deterministic. There is no way to do that, sadly enough. But there is some kind of liberation in acknowledging this futility because what we'll see and what I hope to show you is that there will be new opportunities for discoveries once we shed the straitjacket of this mythology that objectives drive achievement. We will find new ways to achieve that are actually more liberating. And so, to begin, this is a, this is a step that you're probably not expecting after I, I gave you this little, little uh, preview. I want to show you a website called Pick Breeder. Um, and it's a website where people go and evolve pictures together. Basically they breed pictures, the way you do breeding animals, but they're breeding pictures. And we put it up for that purpose. Um, but the reason I'm showing it to you, I want to make it clear, why am I showing you this website, is because I'm going to use it in the early part of this talk as a microcosm for thinking about innovation, or thinking about discovery. The question that I'm going to ask is how do users discover, when you look at this website, the best images, and what I will show you is a vast and desolate space. Most possible images are really bad. Not interesting, but the users on this system find the gems, or the needles in the haystack, and I want to show you how that happens, and I want you to think about how that happens as I show you it, because it really turns out to be very interesting, actually fascinating how it happens. Um, just to give you a little background, this website's been around now for about five years, Um, and it's called picpreer.org, it's free to to use, you can go there yourself and play with it. Um, There's over 9,000 involved images on the site at this point, So there's a lot of images on there, Um, and uh, probably well over 700 users that have contributed to what you'll see. For some of you, I'm just making this point about the biomorphs here, for some of you who are familiar with that, I want to acknowledge the connection that it will remind you of Dawkins' biomorphs, if you've read about them in The Blind Watchmaker. Um, But if you are familiar with those, this is going to be like biomorphs and steroids. If you're not, it doesn't matter. I'm going to show you what I'm talking about and what really matters is this question, which is how do users discover the best images. Um, And we will use that to begin to gain entry to this question of how discovery happens in general. So just to give you a sense of what is PicReader, this is like, it's a website. So if you went to the website, this is literally what you would see there. And what you see here is basically just some things you can do. Like you can branch, you can start from scratch. I'm going to show you what these things mean. If I scroll down, it just shows some image categories like editors, picks, all time top rated, etc. And these image categories you can drill into, you can gain access, you can do search to find some of the thousands of images, any of the thousands of images that are on the site. So, how do users breed images? And of course, this will eventually tie into the point I'm making. So, it's important to kind of get this background out of the way to show you <coughs> how this happens. It's pretty simple. There are two things you can do to begin, and it's important the distinction. The first one is you can start from scratch, and that's shown kind of on the left. It just means that you start, and scratch means you start from just random images, basically blobs that were generated by the system. You can think of it as like the primordial soup of evolution, just the very beginning, things that don't really look like anything, and that's scratch. Or you have another option, which is called branching, and branching means that you can start from an image that is already on the site, and that means something that someone else has discovered. And so basically, people are branching off of other people's discoveries. So this is why the site becomes a metaphor for innovation in general. And so branching, it's like if you started with a butterfly, for example. There's a butterfly on the site. If you started with it, you'd get a bunch of butterfly variants. And this is a, sort of a depiction of what that would be like. Or just as another example, like if you started from one of the faces, you could get a bunch of face variants. And then you're off and you start breeding. So what is the breeding like? Basically, breeding is really simple. If I had a bunch of faces here that were, because I branched from the face that was already on the site, I could select the face that I prefer, So I could say I like this face, um, just completely subjective, I like that face, and then I could press this button, which is the evolve button, and then I would get children of that face, so these are literally offspring generated from that face. So these are its babies. And then, you know, I could keep doing this, and so I could say, okay, well, if I like another face, I could select that and then I could evolve from there. And so ultimately what I'm doing is just breeding. Basically, that's why it's called Pick reader. It's like animal breeding, horse breeding, dog breeding. You're choosing the parents, and then you're choosing more parents from the next generation, and so forth. And so things will evolve towards whatever preferences you express. But here's a unique aspect to Pick reader. When you find something that you like, like say I like one of these images, I could click on it, and then instead of evolving, I could say publish. This, so there's a publish button. And what that will do is it will take that image and its underlying DNA, send it back to the website and put it in the new images category so that the whole world now sees what you discovered. So you can share your discoveries with the public, with all the users that are on the system. Now this is important. To understand what has been achieved on the system, you have to understand that everything that you see ultimately derives from scratch. This kind of world, just a bunch of random blobs. This is how evolution began. When you'll see, you'll see in a moment some of the images that were evolved and it's almost Unbelievable that they come from this, but one, one reason and one way to understand it, as I explained to you, is that they become more complex over generations. So there is a facility in the system, which I'll get a little more detail for you uh, in a bit, that allows these images to become more complex over generations. That's why you can get from here two things that look quite a bit more sophisticated than what you start with. But it's important to understand they start from scratch. So like if you see like the butterfly, some people see the butterfly like on the homepage, and they think Kind of they think, well, you know, we put it there, you know, so that you would be able to evolve butterflies, but this is not true. The butterfly was a discovery. And perhaps it was a discovery based on some other discovery, but if we chain all the way back, eventually we find that it all goes back to this. Nothing was on the site to begin with, just this scratch. So just to give you an idea of what reading from scratch is like, this is just random blobs starting from the beginning. And then I just do the same thing I did before, but now just with the random stuff. So I say, well, which random thing do I like? Maybe I like this. So now it's the parent and these are its children. Not exactly, you know, the most uh, appealing family, but uh, this is how things begin. And I can just keep going. So I say, oh, well, that looks kind of interesting. It's got some new lines in it. So I can continue on and so forth. And this is breeding from scratch. Now, if you think about this, this is where everything began. What do you think if you were playing this game for long enough you would find? What do you think you would find? And I think the answer is pretty amazing, which is that, find this. These are discoveries that people have been making uh, through this breeding process. And I think it's quite remarkable. Uh, You wouldn't necessarily expect people to be able to find stuff like this. For example, you see like a skull and a butterfly and a car. You see Jupiter with its red spot. And so these are all remarkable discoveries. And I want to convince you though that they're remarkable because you may not get understand or be able to appreciate fully how remarkable these discoveries are. These are what our users are finding. So I want to give you a little bit more background so you can appreciate it and then return to the question of how. How are they doing this? Because there actually is something to learn there. So just to remember, uh, remind you, what is going on under the hood, I mean if you think about the whole system in aggregate, is that people are branching off of each other. So like this diagram is a small cross section of what's going on with the action on the system What happened was, you know, somebody evolved, in the beginning of this particular, we call it phylogeny, this thing here, and then from there, uh, there were different people who branched it, and so each line in this whole uh, tree represents perhaps many selections, many generations of a single user until they published what they discovered. So each one of these squares is when someone published something they discovered at the end of some chain. And so people are branching and chaining and branching and chaining, and so you have this proliferation of basically what's happening on the site creating what you would call a phylogeny. This happens to be one with 30 people involved. And so 30 people created this. They're implicitly collaborating, you could think of it as, but they don't actually explicitly collaborate. They never talk to each other. They just branch from each other when they see that the image that they choose is interesting. So, now let me show you uh, how the images are represented. And this is kind of as technical as I'll get. I Too technical in this talk, but I think it'll help you to appreciate why I want to claim to you as obviously an important part of my argument that these are remarkable discoveries. So you have to understand what actually is generating this space of images, and what is generating this space is what's called a compositional pattern-producing network, or CPPN for short. But don't let this terminology distract you. It's really just a simple composition of functions. That's all this is, and. That means that in the, the functions that are composed are here on the right. There's only four of them. There's a Gaussian function, which is a symmetric type of a function. and there's a sigmoid function, which is an asymmetric function. A sine function, which is periodic. And a linear function, which is a line. Um, and so what happens is that this, is, this graph here represents these functions being composed with each other. This is actually the DNA, basically, that generates the images. These are their DNA. X and Y. And then what we do is we get at the output H, S, B, which is Hue, Saturation, and Brightness. So we just query those three outputs. And so basically what we're asking is, what is the color for that XY position? And then we just paint that color at this position here, whatever that XY position is on this plane. So if that doesn't make sense, all I'm saying is we graph the function. We're just graphing the function. It happens to output a color. It outputs a three-dimensional output rather than a one-dimensional, so a vector function. But it outputs a color. And so we just graph that color across the plane, and then we get to see what the form of the function is. You know, so if you just composed a bunch of Gaussian signs and, and sigmoids together, you know, what do you think you would get? When you get you know things like this, um, and so also just so that you know for the for for the details that these connections can have weights, which basically means they're coefficients. So in other words, the input to this Gaussian is y and also x, and then the output. Uh, will be, uh, this will be multiplied by whatever coefficient is on this line and fed into this sigmoid, and then its output is fed into that sigmoid, and then that output eventually is interpreted as Q. So that's basically what's going on, and these are the DNA. So when, when somebody has a child, what happens is that there's some mutations. Slight changes happen in this composition. Sometimes, and this is part of the reason why complexity increases, sometimes a mutation causes a new node or a new connection to appear which means that the function that's being expressed gets more complex. That's why complexity can increase. So that's the explanation for that. Complexity doesn't have to increase because if you don't like it, you won't choose it as a parent. But if you do like it, then basically you're selecting for increasing complexity. So if you think about this, like we're generating images as a function, uh, as a composition of simple functions. What do you think, what kind of search space does this induce? disrepresentation use? Like, in other words, if I just generated lots of CPPNs, like random CPPNs of varying complexities, what do you think is out there in the space of CPPNs? And I'll show you. This is what it looks like. Just about every image you will ever see looks like these. Just garbage. Um, these are CPPNs that have random weights and topologies of varying complexity. So just so you can get a sense of a range of complexity. Basically means and you could generate these for the rest of your life, you could generate these to the end of the universe, you'd probably never see anything meaningful at all. And that is why this is remarkable. These are true needles in a haystack. You would not expect to find things like this in a space like this unless you had a very good search algorithm. And this apparently is what we have in the minds of our users who are finding this stuff in the space. Entire families. Of course, we find a family, these actually your genetic relatives, this is a real family, face family, um, they're genetically closely related, and because the thing is that if somebody discovers a face, they didn't just discover an image that looks like a face, they discovered the mathematical basis of the face, because basically the CPU unit is a mathematical description, and so they basically opened up, if you will, face space, so now you can get to all kinds of faces, so we end up with proliferating families of different types of things. Just to give you a sense of sort of the diversity, kind of interesting imagery that's been discovered here. I mean, these are, these are, again, I think, just amazing discoveries like what are the chances that you would find a pitcher with this handle, I mean, how did we get so lucky? Or this stem on this apple, I mean, how did this happen? Humanoid forms, look at the colors on this tropical bird and on this planet, Earth-like planet. I mean, these are remarkable discoveries. How are people finding this kind of stuff? And I think that some of you are convinced that something interesting is going on. Obviously, I, that's what I want you to be convinced, that there's something interesting going on here, there is true discovery, but I think some of you are not convinced, and I'll tell you why for those of you who are not convinced. The reason you're not convinced is because you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, if I came in there and there's a bunch of random images, like some blobs, and let's say I was looking for a butterfly. So then I would just choose the blob that looks most like a butterfly. And then what I would do is say, out of those offspring, the things that came from that club, I choose the one of those that looks most like a butterfly. And then out of those, I choose the one that most, looks most like a butterfly. And if I just keep going like that, of course I'll get a butterfly. Right? I'm not impressed with this. This is all just, in some sense, predetermined. Of course it's going to happen. I'll just find it if I keep on selecting things that look more and more like it. Now, if that were true, I would agree with you. Then none of this is really that interesting. But here's why it is interesting, because that is exactly the opposite of the way the system works. In fact, if you come in wanting to evolve something, you will almost certainly fail. It's virtually impossible to find anything if you're trying to find it. And obviously this starts to connect in to the moral of this talk. But let me give you a little bit more information to drive the point home. Here's a paradox. It's very strange. It's a fact about Picbreer. We cannot re-evolve any of the interesting images that have been discovered on the site. And this a really interesting fact because we know that they've been discovered so like the skull here obviously you can evolve the skull there's no argument about that because it was evolved so nobody's debating whether the skull can be evolved so we could say okay because we know you can evolve the skull clearly with this representation cpbns and the underlying algorithm in pickrider which is called neat uh, which is a which is an evolutionary algorithm so it generates the variation in the system so we could say well we know you can do with neat and cpbns you can evolve the skull So, it should be possible, right, if you take the skull and make it an objective, an objective for this evolutionary, and basically now we're talking about objective optimization, and then we just automate it, so we take humans out of the loop, because now we know we want the skull, and we just pick parents that look more and more skull-like. So we compare them to the skull, and if they look more like the skull then they get chosen as parents, and we just run an automated evolution. This is an objective-driven search, making the skull the objective. This should work, right, because Neat did find the skull. I mean, this is from PicBreeder, and we're Neat is inside PicBreeder. But, actually, if you try to do this experiment, the output is always terrible. No one has ever rediscovered the skull. It's basically impossible for all practical purposes. These are just a few examples. Each one of these was a 30,000 generation attempt, and we've done this many times. These are just three examples of that. And as you can see, this is about as good as it gets after 30,000 generations. Remarkably, the original skull was found in only 74 generations. It's a really interesting result because, you know, normally, like if this was a regular sort of machine learning experiment, let's say skulls were like the benchmark to beat in machine learning. Everybody wants to evolve a skull or to learn a skull, learn a function that will represent a skull. It's like the ultimate regression problem. Find the equation for a skull. Then, you know, if if I ran neat and and, and then it failed miserably every time 30,000 generation attempts, you know, most people would say, well, is there something wrong with Nina? It's not good for skulls. You know, this is a bad skull-evolving algorithm. But clearly, because of the strange way that we're getting this result, this is not true. Nina's great at evolving the skull. If <coughs> she did evolve only 74 generations, You got a skull. So the usual interpretation is wrong. The reason that the skull is hard to discover is not because anything to do with the algorithm. It's because it's the objective. Making it an objective immediately makes it impossible to Discover. It's a really interesting fact. This is a universal fact. Take any of the interesting images on the site, make them an objective, and try to evolve them with the CPPN towards that objective, and you will fail. And we tried it with many of these, um, and this, this is an empirical result. Why? Why would this be? I want to tell you why through a story um, the story of the car. And this is a good way to see. Why it's so hard to find something by making an objective. Now, the reason I can tell you the story of the car is because I'm proud to say I'm the one who discovered the car. So I actually made this discovery. Um, and first of all, would you expect, if you were playing with Pic Creator, to pick three or two, evolve a car? And at least I can say I definitely did not expect it. Not only did I not expect it, I wasn't even thinking about evolving a car because it wouldn't even occur to me that it could be possible. I mean, I would never think you'd get this two wheels and uh, and everything, I mean, this seems like this wouldn't even be possible in a system like this with these random compositions of functions. But then I did find one. And so I learned a lot just from that moment because I suddenly found out how these discoveries are being made. So let me tell you how I found the car. The first and most important ingredient is I was not looking for the car, like I said. That's not how I started. Instead, what was I doing? I started with the alien face. Now, I didn't evolve the alien face. That's somebody else involved the alien face. Somebody before me. And it looked like this. I think it looks like E.T. That's my opinion. So I thought, okay, maybe I can get more alien faces. That's what I was thinking about. Um, because this looks like a promising stepping stone to lots of alien faces. But then, something really strange happened. Something amazing happened. The eyes of the aliens started to descend. And now you can see this in hindsight. It's not necessarily obvious, All looking forward, but in hindsight, clearly there is a relationship between these wheels and these eyes. But who would ever think that when you're going forward? It's impossible that you could predict something like that. But when I saw the wheels descend, the eyes descending, then in my mind it became wheels. And then I knew that I was within the valence of that attractor. I could actually get to that car. And I suddenly realized I'm getting into car space. And then I knew I could get a car. And so it's serendipity. Serendipity led me to the car. And so, this is a really strange story. I want to just drive home how weird this is. Because what this means is the only way to find the car was by not looking for it. I I promise you that's true, because if I had been looking for a car, I would not have started with the alien face. Right? Because it doesn't look like a car to me. That's all that matters. I wouldn't have chosen it if I was looking for a car. I only choose it if I'm not looking for a car. And yet, it gets even more convoluted, because I wouldn't have evolved the alien either. I mean, the alien face, that's somebody else's discovery, not mine. So someone else had to discover that for me to make my discovery. So to summarize this story, I'll just give you a really convoluted statement. In order for me to make my discovery, somebody had to do something that I never would have done, and then I had to not be trying to do what I ultimately did. Now, when you think about that, it just sounds like this would never happen again. Right? This is some crazy coincidence that I got so lucky. But here's the weird thing. This is not a coincidence. This is the story of every interesting discovery on the site. It's always the same story. This is the way discoveries are made. I mean, would you think that an egg with a hat would lead to a teapot? Now, again, in hindsight, you can kind of see that there's clearly some kind of mathematical relationship between the lid here and the hat here. I mean, you can see this in hindsight. But going forward, there's no way anybody would be thinking this. I can guarantee you, the person who evolved the egg with the hat, whatever they were thinking, they were not thinking about teapots. Would you think that a dish would lead to a skull? So we see this dish here and the skull. The dish is a stepping stone that led to the skull. I can guarantee you the person who evolved that dish was not thinking about skulls. Did you know? I bet you didn't know that the letter G actually led to the planet Jupiter. And this is... Of course, the person involved in that G probably never would have anticipated Jupiter would one day come out of it. And so, this is always the story. The stepping stones almost never resemble the final product. And this is why you cannot find something by looking for it. Because if you were looking for it, you would never select these stepping stones. You would ignore them, and therefore you would never get to all of these great discoveries. And so what is the moral of this? this first part of of what I'm going to tell you. The moral is that the reason this system works is because there is no unified goal. That is why it works. In other words, the only way to find the needles in the haystack, these really rare discoveries, interesting things that exist in the vast and distant space of all the images generated by CBPNs, is by not collectively looking for them. Users on this site have conflicting goals and interests. Somebody might have an objective, some individual might come in and be like, I want to involve, you know, a butterfly. They'll fail. Like I said, that's not the way I advise you to use the site. You should come in and just explore if you want to have success. Some may not have a goal, some just go in and to do just that, just explore around. But whatever the case, the system as a whole has no unified objective. And that is the only reason that it works. Because the fact that, every, that there is no unified objective means that every discovery that is made inside of this space is a potential stepping stone for someone else. If there was a unified objective, then all of these stepping stones would be discarded because they don't resemble the objective. For example, if we said, and early on people said, you should have a competition, you know, say, this week everybody looks for a skull. We say, get all this human brain power focused on this. That's a bad idea. Because not only would there never be a skull, there would never be any of the images on the site if we did something like that. The only way that there can be all these discoveries is by not having a unified objective because we are collecting stepping stones. This system is a stepping stone collector, not an optimizer. It collects stepping stones that lead to places, places that we don't know where they lead, but they create opportunity. And that is why all these discoveries are being made. So I've been talking about basically stepping stones. Let's think about stepping stones for a second. What are stepping stones? Steps. Stepping stones are steps in the search space that lead to your objective. Often we think about it this way. We have to traverse these stones, or maybe there's other alternative paths we can take, but we have to traverse some set of stones to get to where we want to go. Now the problem we face, and the fundamental problem with all of search, is that it may be hard or impossible to identify a priori what the stepping stones are to get to where you want to go. That's the problem we face. We don't know what they are. If we did it, there wouldn't be a search problem. Now this is especially true for ambitious problems. And I want to emphasize that. I'm basically not talking about things that are easy. <laughs> Like, if you went to pick breeder and you just wanted to breed like a blank screen, that's not going to be that hard. That's not far away. I'm talking about things that are hard far away, many stepping stones away, past the horizon of where we understand. That's what I call ambitious problems. And in those kinds of problems, the problem we face is that the stepping stones may not induce a positive change in the objective function. What do I mean by that? I mean, if I had an objective function, now often we talk about objective functions in machine learning, like how car-like is it, that's my objective function, then the alien face does not induce a positive change in that function. It doesn't look Markoro-like to me, it doesn't look like a car at all. This is the problem that we face in search, which is sometimes called deception. This is, the problem is that often search problems are deceptive. The steps that lead to where you want to go do not resemble where you want to go, and so to give you an example, like a classic example this is a great example of deception: the Chinese finger trap. If you don't know what the Chinese finger trap is, it's basically, is a tube, and if you stick your fingers in both ends of the tube, the tube basically tightens around your fingers and traps you. So that's why it's called a Chinese finger trap. Now, most people, to try to get out of the Chinese finger trap, naturally, will try to pull away towards freedom. Of course, is in the direction out of the tube. But what happens the tube actually gets tighter the more you pull, so you can't get out that way. It turns out that the only way to escape the Chinese finger trap is to push inward, which is away from freedom. So the stepping stone from freedom is to become less free. The trap will open if you push inward rather than outward. This is of intentional deception. Of course, this is a deceptive stepping stone. You do exactly the opposite of what you think you need to do. It looks exactly the opposite direction of the the direction that you seem to need to go, but that's the only way you can get where you need to go. Now, you you might say, well, the Chinese finger trap is really unfair. It was designed to be deceptive. I mean, it's a trick. But I would say to you, this is trivial compared to the problems we're interested in. I mean, the things we're interested in, the dreams we might have of building, of creating, are extremely complicated, that exist in spaces far more complicated than a single false stepping stone like the Chinese finger trap. There are probably thousands or millions of deceptive traps littered across the search space in the things that we're interested in as human beings. This is a trivial example, and so deception is ubiquitous in search. That's why things are challenging. That's why we're so happy when we do actually succeed in achieving something, because it's not clear how to get there. So let's think about this for a second. Talking about the pervasive problem of deception, what about the limits of human innovation? If you think that human innovation is driven by objectives, as many of us do, as basically our culture teaches us, you should set objectives and then tell people what our objectives are and then we'll approve of your project if we think you have a good objective. Well, okay, so let's try an objective here. Let's go back 5,000 years and we will take all the greatest minds of the day. Five thousand years ago, and sequester them in this like prehistoric Manhattan Project, and we'll tell them, "You guys have to build a computer or else we're not going to let you free." All the all the geniuses of the day build a computer. Is this a good idea? We tell them, you know, there's this machine you can program it. It does all these cool things. It's got a screen. You know, make one of these for us. You guys are geniuses. We should be able to figure this out. Give you a few decades to do it. Um, now, this would, have been, uh, this would have been nice, of course, because I think, you know, maybe computers today would be a little more impressive if they had done this. So, so, why don't we do this? Well, but the thing is, this is a terrible idea. Not a good idea at all, because, you know, that it turns out that vacuum tubes were in the first computers. They were integral to the first computers, and so in that sense, a vacuum tube is a stepping stone to a computer. Vacuum tubes, of course, were invented far before computers but they were not invented with computation in mind. Vacuum tubes are just like the alien face that led to the car, in the sense that the people who invented vacuum tubes were not thinking of building computers. Now, if they had been thinking of building computers, they wouldn't have invented vacuum tubes, because the last thing you're thinking about when you're thinking about computation is vacuum tubes. And so, this is why this is such a bad idea. All those geniuses in the room, they would never build vacuum tubes. So basically just, you know, wiped out a generation of great minds. They should be allowed to follow the things that they think are interested in that time and day, not be given this far-off ambitious objective whose stepping stones are completely blind to them at that time. And, I mean, if you go back even farther, I mean, we're about computation. Electricity, which, of course, was what vacuum tubes were about. They were actually used in electrical experiments initially. Electricity was not discovered with computation in mind either. It wasn't like people were like running around looking for what is the right substrate for computation. Well, if they had been, they probably wouldn't have discovered electricity this is going to be true in any chain of innovations in human history. So I'll make a really kind of controversial claim, uh, but just hopefully to provoke some thinking, is that what I want to claim to you is almost no prerequisite to any major invention was invented with that invention in mind. And this should give us great pause for those who think that objectives should drive achievement. What is great invention? You know, think about things like the airplane, the computer, I mean, the airplanes which had engines, and the engines were not invented with airplanes in mind, and vacuum tubes were not invented with computers in mind, and of course, you know, it's true that also jazz was not invented with rock and roll in mind, it's always the case, and great invention does not mean seeing many stepping stones in the future, although we think of visionaries in that way. What it means is seeing one stepping stone ahead, that's the nature of great invention, so somebody like Steve Jobs, I mean, he didn't say, you know what, let's just put all of our billions of dollars of Apple computer into building like a world-class artificial intelligent robot that's just going to walk out as like a humanoid to take over the world. Or, this would be a terrible idea. That's many stepping stones in the future. All he did is say, well, we've got this music player, maybe we could build a phone. One stepping stone. But it's a stepping stone that most people didn't see. That you can get to hear to hear easily, given where we are today. We live, basically, the human conditions are stranded on a stepping stone with the search operator of the human mind. We can project and see where we can get from where we are to where we can go next. One stepping stone away. And that's about the limit of our vision. Nobody can see many stepping stones in the future. And that, I claim to you, is the real nature of innovation. So this realization should touch all of us. I mean, we have a lot of ambitious objectives. If you want to make a million dollars, change the world. You know, create some kind of masterpiece. Change how people think, or create, you know, artificial intelligence in the truest sense, a strong AI. <coughs> but if you follow the logic that I've shown you, if you follow it through breeder and you follow it through these thought experiments that I just gave you, then you have to conclude, if you make these your objective, you probably won't achieve them. In fact, you're more likely, probably, if you follow a different path. If you're not trying to create that masterpiece, maybe then you will create a masterpiece because you weren't trying, because you will then not be deceived by the stepping stones. This is sobering, but it's also interesting news, because it means that there's a different way to achieve great things. And so, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, but first I want to sort of analyze what this means for the way that we think about search, both in our culture, human culture, and also as computer scientists too because computer science is full of search algorithms. Basically, what machine learning is about is search. I think this means there's something wrong, something is wrong in the heart of search. I mean, we always pose search problems as objectively driven. That's why there's things called objective functions. They're driven by objectives. But if you buy what I'm saying, that an ambitious objective is a false compass, then you're basically in as bad of a situation as if your compass said north equals south. I mean, it is completely useless in the most ambitious situations. And so, how else could it work then? What else could we do? Well, let me propose to you something radical, which is that we just abandon our objectives. I know that this is depressing and disappointing and a lot of people don't want to do this, but let's just see, where would we go if we abandoned our objectives? If we stopped trying to have objectives, what then could drive achievement? Well, here's one suggestion. We could follow the gradient of interestingness. What does that mean? You know, sometimes you might think, well, if you're telling me that, you know, I should just abandon my objectives, you're kind of just launching me into this world of random craziness. Like I'll just wander around and hope something good happens. But that's not necessarily what this means. There are other gradients to follow other than the objective gradient. The objective is just one type of information. And in fact, it turns out to be a bad type of information because of deception. There There are other gradients that we can follow that are more meaningful, more informative, and I would claim more promising like interestingness. I mean, think about serendipitous discovery. Is serendipity an accident? I mean, it's often posted as an accident. But it's interesting because if you go to like Wikipedia's page, and I encourage you to look at it, it's really interesting on, on serendipity. There's this whole list of serendipitous discoveries there. Almost everybody in that list is well-educated, has a good track record, has done other interesting uh, things in the past, has had many great achievements why would those people be making accidental discoveries? Why is that a consistent trend? It's because it's not an accident. It's because people, what really distinguishes us, is that we have a nose for the interesting. We understand that if this path We take this path, something interesting is going to happen. I can't quite tell you what that is, but I just know if I combine this chemical and this chemical, something is around the corner, and I'm going to go and check that out, and I don't have an objective because I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm telling you, my gut tells me this is the way to go, and we are really good at this, and that is a different way to guide achievement. We're good at sensing potential. And so it is possible that search could be driven in this way, driven by potential, the sense of potential rather than through objectives. And so let me now put my money where my mouth is because I mean I'm claiming a lot to you obviously there's a lot of controversial things I'm saying so I've got to prove it to you somehow that you know this actually could make some sense so let me show you an algorithm that has no objective which we created which is called novelty search and we'll see what kinds of things come out when we start searching without an explicit objective okay so what I'm proposing to you is that we have an algorithm that searches only for novelty. So we'll run this on a computer. And novelty is not a typical objective, and we can get into a semantic argument. I think some people immediately want to say, wait a second, novelty is an objective. You know, I object to what you're saying or you're trying to trick me. But no, I don't think novelty is an objective in the traditional sense, because when I think of an objective, I think of... You define what you're trying to achieve and then you drive towards achieving it. And a novelty is not like that at all because novelty is something that changes over time. What's novel now will not be novel tomorrow. And novelty does not define a particular point in the search space because it's completely relative to where you've been before. It's not a traditional objective. I think it was more as a constraint, a constraint that can drive the search. So it can be hard to identify stepping stones, that is basically why. Oh, we're doing this. So just to remind you why we're going to do this. It's hard to identify stepping stones a priori. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at novelty as a proxy for stepping stones. So I would like to use interestingness, but interestingness is really hard to formalize. If this would be great if someone could do that. But So we're going to use novelty kind of as a substitute here, um, second best. So we'll say novelty is a proxy for stepping stones in the sense that anything that does something different is a potential stepping stone. So you say, well, to what? Where are you trying to go? And I say to you, well, exactly. I don't know where I'm going. That's the whole point. It's a potential stepping stone to something new. The whole point is just to get more new stuff. And so novelty is not a random search. I mean, a lot of times so it sounds as like if it's going to be random. It is based on information. It's just different information than the information we're used to. This is an information-rich type of a process. I mean, comparing where you are to where you've been, where you've been is all kinds of stuff. There's lots of stuff that we can refer to in order to compute novelty. Um, So it's not like this is just some kind of random search. It's just different from what we're used to. Now, there's no final objective in the usual sense. We're not trying to get anything in particular, just to find new behaviors. And here's the weird thing, and here's what I'll show you. Even though we do things that way, which sounds kind of crazy, we will encounter solutions to problems that we have, even though we're not looking for them. In effect, we will sometimes be better at finding a solution to our problems by not actually trying to solve them than we actually try to solve them. So let me try to show you that. So what I'm going to do like, to test this idea is I'm going to just give you some sense of how we can like, go about this at a technical level. We're going to use an evolutionary algorithm, and it's going to be NEAT again, and if you recall, NEAT was actually the thing in PicReader too, so now we're going to take it here, but instead of evolving pictures, we're going to evolve what are called artificial neural networks, which are like, you could think of them if you're not familiar with this, as little artificial brains. So those kind of CPPN networks with the Gaussians and the signs and so forth, instead of having that we could think of just like some connectivity of neurons that has evolved through this evolutionary process of picking parents. And these neural networks we will put into simulated robots so they can drive the robots and then we'll see what they do, what they do when they drive the robots, basically we'll do evolution. Now normally if you were doing evolutionary computation you would pick the robots that perform the best, that's objective driven search. Say, well, if they do better at getting through the maze, then I'm going to pick this as a parent and make more robots like that. But we're not going to do that in this case. We're not going to have a fitness function in the traditional sense. Instead, what we're going to say is, if you do something different than what we've seen before, then you get to have children. So we're searching only for novelty. This is not a diversity maintenance algorithm. Sometimes people talk about diversity and evolution. This is a diversity-only algorithm. There is nothing that we're looking for other than just diversity. No concept of better or worse. We're completely agnostic you fall on your face, great, as long as no one fell on their face before. We're happy for you. Um, There's no objective. And not only that, but this concept changes over the course of evolution. So as soon as we find something, it's no longer novel. I mean, it's novel in that moment, but then as we continue to search, we no longer want to find the same thing again. So unlike most search, when you're driven by objective, search is convergent. We're trying to move towards a point in the search space, which is our goal. We are talking here about the exact opposite. This is divergent search. As soon as I find something, I put a stake in the ground and say, I found this, everybody runs away. Because the only way to survive is to be difficult. So this is a divergent search. So now, a lot of people, when they hear about this first, they, they, they get a little skeptical and say, you know what? The, the thing that concerns me here is this sounds a little bit like exhaustive search. Like, if you know, if you're a computer scientist and you know exhaustive search, it basically means like just enumerate everything that could possibly exist, and eventually you'll find everything you ever wanted. And this is not very exciting you know, because obviously this could take until the end of the universe to actually find something interesting if we're just doing an exhaustive search. So I want to convince you this is not an exhaustive search. And the reason it is not is because novelty induces an order, and it is a principled order. And if you think about search, why do we have any faith in search at all? Why do we believe in search as a process? The reason I think that we believe in search is because we expect it to induce an order, that we will move from something to something else far away, and there's some order to those discoveries. And the order that we usually believe in is the order from worse to better. That's basically the objective-driven order. In other words, this is not good, this is a little better, this is a little better, this is a little better, and eventually, I got what I want. So, but what I'm telling you is that that is not a principled way to conduct a search because it's inherently deceptive. It sounds good, we wish it would work that way, but the world is deceptive, and so the ordering from worse to better, is in some sense a naive way to order and search. Instead, what novelty does is it orders the search in a more principled way, which is from simple to complex. And there's a simple reason for this. It is because once all the simple behaviors that could possibly exist are exhausted, then the only way that you can do something new is to become more complex. So it has to go up in complexity. And There's actually a flip side to this, which is that if complexity is increasing, then so is information. (laughs) Complexity and information are related. So another way of thinking about it is that novelty requires accumulating information. The more novel stuff that you discover, the more information it's going to take to discover something even more novel. And so it's kind of an information accumulator. It's actually a very interesting process when you think about novelty uh, as a discovery process on its own. So let me show you an example. Imagine that this black dot is a robot in a hallway, and that's the hallway that it's in. And then we try novelty search. So what happens is that it just runs into a wall first thing. Okay, we say, good, I'm glad you ran into that wall because I've never seen anyone do that before. <laughs> so now it does, we have somebody else and they also but a different wall. So good again, we haven't seen anyone run into that wall before. And it just keeps happening, so he runs into that wall and we're, we're still very happy here because everybody's running into different walls. But eventually, the problem is that we will see all the walls that could be run into get run into. All the running into walls behaviors will be exhausted, and then something magical will happen. Because at that moment, it becomes essential that someone will will emerge that actually knows what a wall is. So So information about the environment, about the world, physical reality, has become integrated into this robot's little brain so that it actually will avoid the walls. Not because my objective was to teach the robot how to avoid walls in the traditional sense, but because eventually you have to understand what a wall is to do something new. And eventually you're going to have to figure out how to go through a door to do something new. And eventually you're going to have to figure out how to go through a whole maze to do something new. And eventually you're going to build buildings and build civilizations to do something new, because eventually you're going to run out of things to do at the simple level. And so now we search in, in the extreme, is basically an information accumulator that will do more and more interesting stuff, accumulating information about the world in which it lives. So let me show you a couple experiments to show you how this works. So let's do novel research, and this was really the original novel research experiment in this maze domain, and they were done in a maze domain because it's intuitively easy to kind of appreciate the idea of deception in a maze. So if you imagine like a robot in a maze, and this, this will be where the robot will start at the big dot, and that the goal is the small dot, and this is the maze in which the robot exists, then normally, like, now what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to evolve a robot brain that will actually drive it through the maze. It's a simulated robot, so it actually has like rangefinder sensors, and it's going to use them so it can see the walls, like like a, a real robot, like a Kepler robot or some other kind of robot that would actually exist in the physical world. And so these actually these, these controllers actually can be transferred to real robots that will be evolved. But the reason I'm giving you those details is because I just want you to appreciate that we're not talking about pathfinding here, if you're, if you're, you're thinking about A-star or things like that to get through your maze. We're not doing A star, we're not thinking about finding the optimal path, what we're doing here is evolving a brain that will drive the robot through the maze. So it has to go around the walls and learn how to get around walls, not run into walls, and it has to learn how to get through a path and so forth. All of that will have to be encoded inside of its little neural network brain, and that will have to be evolved. Now normally, when people do some experiments like this, and this is a metaphor for basically doing an objective-driven experiment, so we've intentionally arranged it in this way. But what you would do is you would say, the closer you get to the goal, the higher your fitness, or the higher your objective function, your objective score. So the, then that creates deception in this maze because if you look at this maze, if this robot comes up and goes around here and then ends up over here, it's very close in terms of distance to the goal. And so this is very attractive to come over here because we get a high score. But, of course, this is deceptive because this is not a good place to go. It actually has to go all the way around here and actually get a lower score for a while and before it comes back around and comes back into the goal. So there's a very deceptive problem. We intentionally made it deceptive. And if you think that this is unfair, because it's unfair to the objective, well, I mean, the world is unfair. That's the whole point. I'm doing this because I want you to see what happens when there exist cul-de-sacs in the search space as there always inevitably will except in most cases you won't be able to see them because we don't actually know the structure of the search space the nice thing about this is we can really see it so it helps intuitively so we'll do three experiments one of them will be objective objective based where the fitness function is the distance to the goal at the end of the trial in other words you are rewarded and allowed to have children if you get closer to the goal the second one will be the novelty search where you are rewarded not for getting closer to the goal but only for getting somewhere where someone else hasn't been before you're rewarded for being different. And then we'll also do random search. And we're just doing that because for those who kind of hold holdouts who think that knowledge search is basically random, just, you can check it out and see how, how close it is to random after all. Of course, it's not random, and I, I want to make that claim because it is guided by information, which is a different source of information. So what do you think we'll do better here? Uh, a search that is basically rewarded for doing better at the problem that we want it to perform, or a search that has no idea what it's trying to do at all. And as you probably expect, it is the one that has no idea what it's trying to do that does better. In fact, when we ran these experiments, we did 40 runs for each method, 40 attempts of evolution. Only three of them were successful when the objective was to solve the maze. When we did random selection, four were successful. This is an illustration of the profound problem of deception. I mean, deception is such a terrible thing in this in this, uh, in this this maze that setting an objective basically makes you no know better than a random search. Because the objective is basically useless. It's a false compass. Basically just sending you into the cul-de-sac. But novelty search, which doesn't even know what it's trying to do. Which all it does is try to create new things. Was successful, it's evolving something that actually navigates the maze, a brain that can navigate a robot through the maze in 39 out of 40 runs. The algorithm that doesn't know what it's trying to do. Let me show you a little bit about one, just to give you some intuition. Here's some visualizations. Now, what you're gonna see, I'm gonna show you an animation. And in this animation, these dots that you see are going to accumulate in both of these mazes. One of them is basically the objective-driven on, on the right here. That's fitness. And one of them is novelty, which is basically driven by novelty. And each dot represents the final point visited by a robot in a single attempt. So in other words, you know, in evolution, we're, we're looking at lots and lots of robots because we keep on evolving generation after generation. And you're going to see basically all of those robots, but visualized in terms of the last point they visited in their attempt. So that's basically how far they got. You know, so early on they don't get very far in either case. But watch what happens when we start to run. What you see is that at first it looks similar, but the thing is, fitness commits a lot of resources or the objective to these cul de sacs because they're getting closer to the goal, whereas novelty gets tired of them because they're no longer novel. So it starts to actually reward things that go out here. Now these guys may have a better a lower objective score than these guys, you know, because they're farther away from the goal, but novelty doesn't care about that because it doesn't have a goal. So it's not deceived in the same way. It can't be deceived at all in the traditional sense. Of course, it also doesn't know what it's trying to do. But this is why it actually ends up doing better. So, we, so you may say, well, you know, you 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 know, kind of concocted this problem to make novelty look better. I would claim to you, no, we didn't do that. This problem is representative of all search problems. The only difference in this problem is that we happen to actually know the structure of the deception in space. But for those who still think that somehow the maze is not representative of most search problems. We tried something a little bit more um, a little bit more respected, which is this biped walking benchmark. Now, this is really hard to evolve biped walkers, basically biped walking robots. This guy, particularly hard to evolve because he has no torso. <laughs> so, your torso is kind of important for balance, but he has no torso. So, we said, let's throw a neural network into this in a physics simulator and, and try to evolve it to walk. And, and the usual way you would do this, which has been done many times in many publications, is to reward the distance it travels. In other words, the farther it travels, the more likely it is to have offspring. But, novelty search, what we would do is we would reward just ending somewhere different. In other words, words, if you just walk out and kind of fall on your face, that's considered good because we haven't seen anyone fall on their face in that place in the past before. So, we don't care what you do as long as it's different from what other people have done in the past. Now, what do you think leads to better walking? I mean, this is fairly remarkable that this would actually lead to walking because you can kind of see in the maze, but here it's like, how could you possibly learn how to walk when you're rewarded for just doing anything different at all? But the fact is, actually, Novelty Search finds significantly better waters. They're almost twice as fast, they're more stable, and in the best one, uh, goes twice as far. So the best one that was evolved by Novelty Search from something like 40 runs, is a 13.7 meter, in, that, in, the, in some limited time duration. The best one from the objective was a 6.8 meter, and I'll just show you a little clip, so you can see these guys. The Novelty's best is on the right, the objective one is on the left, and you can see The objective one is having a bit of a bad day. And now the search is very smooth and very fast and uses his knees much better. (laughs) Remember, it's really amazing that this novelty one wasn't even being asked to walk, yet it became a better walker. And, you know, that may seem really strange, but, you know, the the moral here is just that the stepping stones that lead to walking don't look like walking. Once again, it's deceptive. I mean, oscillation is really important in walking. And if you start oscillating, and fall on your face. I mean, from the objective perspective, this is not good. You just fell on your face. You haven't made any progress at all. You'd be better off just kind of like flailing around and lunging forward because it looks like you're making more progress. But that's not a stepping stone to walking. And so the thing about novelty is it doesn't care. It's completely agnostic about it. It just says if you do something new, this might lead to something interesting. And in fact, that is why it actually starts collecting the real stepping stones that are behind walking. And this is why we get better walkers. Now, we've seen at this point many similar outcomes. People have been doing novelty searching in all kinds of different domains over the last few years since it was first introduced that repeat this result where novelty does better than the objective. It sounds crazy. Whoops. It's hard to accept. Um, but it's been repeated many times. And so what I want to do now, just to close it up, is say what does it all mean? Because it's really important for me to interpret these results carefully because they could definitely be interpreted wrong. And I don't want to give you the wrong message. It's true that finding, that they do show that finding the objective is often more effective by not looking for it. And, but I don't want you to think that's the lesson. That's not what I'm trying to tell you. It's true as an empirical fact. Sometimes that's true. It won't always be true. And in fact, the real important point here is that it, novelty search will not always work to, to achieve a defined goal. That's not what I'm trying to tell you, like that novelty search is the solution to all our problems, just search for novelty and everything will be solved. Of course not, some search spaces are so vast, who knows where the novelty search will go. It'll give you something interesting, but it may not be what you wanted. The real lesson here is that there is futility at the heart of search. I mean, this is an embarrassment for the objective, these results. You, can, you might think that, you know, I'm sort of I'm promoting novelty search. That's not what I'm doing. I am saying we should be really embarrassed for the objective this is the way we guide our culture through objectives and this thing can't even evolve a robot to go through a maze I mean imagine when you talk about really complicated problems the the, the kind of problems we're going to get into and yet it actually gets beat by an algorithm that doesn't even know what it's trying to do I mean this shows you that we are dealing with an enormous problem if we want to be able to create methods that would just guarantee us to get somewhere knowledge research has no such guarantee and the objective is even worse in many cases so ultimately the problem is futile. That's the important lesson. Not that analogy search is the solution to everything. But lest I sound pessimistic, I'm not being pessimistic, because I think this is actually really good news. Because if we embrace this, then we recognize how greatness really is possible, because is denying that great things are achieved all the time. We did invent computers, and we did invent airplanes, and rock and roll was invented. I mean, these things get done. But it is possible if it is undefined. So basically what I'm saying is you've got a choice. There's basically two options here. Option number one is if you if you, can, you can have an objective, but you have to define it sufficiently modestly for it to be possible basically one stepping stone away. If it's one stepping stone away, maybe you can get there if you define it and you work hard and <coughs> you know, act like Marty McFly and you, you'll, you'll try hard and achieve your objectives. or If you want to achieve something that's many stepping stones away, forget having an objective. You cannot define your goal, and you may achieve greatness, but you won't know what that greatness ultimately will be. You have to let go of the idea that you have to define where you're going in order to get there. Then you may find someone great, but who knows where that may be. And this is a trade-off that exists in search. It's not the trade-off we want. Obviously, we want option three, which is, I define my objective, it's 8,000 stepping stones away, and I get there. But the world just doesn't work that way. It would be too good to be true if it worked that way. This is basically the trade off that we're working with. Now, if you accept this, there's some form of liberation here because we can actually capture this type of process. I mean, going back a little bit more towards Earth, I mean, just in terms of computer science, we could create pick reader like systems all over the place. I mean, we could create catalogs. Imagine like clothing catalogs, furniture catalogs, where, you know, instead of buying something when you select it, you get variants of it. And the catalog just basically starts collecting stepping stones, things that might lead to other interesting products. Um, you know, we could find all kinds of interesting things because we understand that these non unified processes, processes that have no unified objective, are the things that find the needle the stack. We can create these processes and exploit them. I, I pointed, I actually added science funding in there. Because if you think about it, science funding, for those of us who are scientists, is basically objectively driven. I mean, if you think about this, I mean, you, you send a proposal in, you have to say what your objective is. You're basically evaluate almost entirely on whether somebody thinks you're going to achieve this objective it's clearly wrong-headed. I mean, if you followed my argument, this is not a good way to be guiding a process that is supposed to be a discovery-driven process. Um, so a lot of things in society, and this is just one example, science funding, really could use some rethinking if we accept that objectives are a false compass when it comes to really ambitious discovery. Now, the deeper meaning here, sort of getting down to the heart of the matter, is that search if you're looking for something interesting out there in the space of all possible things, it is at its most awesome when it has no objective. Just look at the examples. Natural evolution, it has no final objective. Humans are not the objective. You know, Birds are not the objective. It's not trying to create anything in particular. It has no objective in the formal sense, and yet it creates all of the most amazing engineering products that you've ever seen, far more amazing than anything ever produced now, human innovation. There is no unified objective to human innovation. You may be trying to accomplish something, but humanity as a whole has no unified objective. That's the only reason we discover anything at all. And look at all the things that we discover. It's because we have no objective, because we are laying stepping stones for each other. The things that I discover become stepping stones to things that you discover. Now, more modest, of course, pick breeder, novel research. They're not, you know, they're not anything on the scale of nature or human innovation. But they show the phenomenon in action. You can see the needles and the haystack being discovered on Pickreader. You can see novelty Search doing better than the objective-based search embarrassingly. I'm not saying these are all the same process. They are not the same. There's different aspects to all four of these things. But they are unified by the idea that there is no final objective. That is why they work. What are they? They are not objective optimizers. They are stepping stone collectors. And it's always stepping stone collectors that find the most amazing things. Stepping stone collectors are search processes that are not trying to do anything particular, but that keep things around that are interesting just in case they might lead later to something even more interesting. And yet, we rarely try to emulate the stepping stone collector. You know, our philosophy in human culture and in computer science and machine learning is to chain search. We basically want to say, We're going to impose this objective on this process, and it must move and converge towards that objective, or else we're basically going to cut off that part of the search space. We could unleash the treasure hunter. The treasure hunter is a stepping stone collector. It finds all these gems, and it keeps collecting them. And then we could avoid the false security of objectives. It's in your interest, it's in our interest, that some do not follow the path that you believe is right, because they are the ones... That will discover the stepping stones that lead to your greatest discoveries. We don't want to be unified in purpose. So one way maybe I could distill the whole thing down is to say that to achieve our highest goals, we must be willing to something interesting to think about. And actually I think that this idea has been in the back of our minds for a long time. And we've seen it, we've seen hints of it from time to time. And I just want to end by showing you a few of those and hopefully now you kind of revisit them in a new light and see them in a different way and you see these things that people have said in the past which now look like they have a whole new level of meaning. Let me just show you a few of these. French, this is, I do not search, I find. And probably most appropriate of all. Okay, thank you. we open it up for some questions? Yes. Um, how do you define novelty? Because that would seem to be the trickiest thing. I mean, yeah. novelty in pictures is, well, this pixel is different yeah. than this one now, so that's new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in practice, like when we run this novelty search algorithm, there has to be an actual behavior characterization, which is a way of defining what a behavior was, so that it can then be compared to other behaviors, and then compute novelty and of course the way that that is done does matter um, and so there are good ways and there are worse ways to do it um, depending on the domain so it's hard to say something generally about it. It's you know it depends on the domain you know in the maze though it's very simple like all we looked at and at least the experiment I showed you was the last point visited in a whole trajectory so a lot of the time it doesn't take much to kind of get this, this process bootstrapped because you could imagine we could have just taken we might have needed to take the whole trajectory into account in order to measure novelty. But we just took into account the last point visited. So it's a somewhat forgiving concept. But I mean, the deeper issue with what you're asking is that ideally we wouldn't even be measuring novelty. Ideally we would be interested Because what we're really interested in is collecting things that have potential. That basically means are interesting. Um, and novelty you are just using as kind of a, a proxy. But it's in some sense a weak proxy. You know, in pick Reader, something much more powerful than novelty is happening. Um, and novelty is just a poor man's approximation of what's happening there. But it's true that if we ran novelty search over Pickreader, you wouldn't be having butterflies and cars and faces. This is true. So human beings, basically we, have some amazing ability to identify potential in things. What is interesting, what might lead to more things. I mean, a superficial analysis of Pickreader would say that people just chose things because they look like stuff. And often that's those are the interpretation. From you know, my looking at it, my interpretation is that that's not really what's going on. I think people are choosing things overall um, because they think that they have potential. Um, and a lot of pictures on Reader don't really look like anything, um, but somehow, intuitively, people understand that this is something new, I haven't seen this before, and who knows what might come of it, and that's why I'm going to publish it and share it with other people. Um, and so I think what we're really keying in on as human beings is interestingness, novelty is just an attempt to get at that, and of course the way we characterize or measure novelty also is related to that, and just trying to get as close as we can to the idea of what is interesting to us. One question there. Just in terms then of, has anyone gone back and analyzed the gaps between stepping stones post-hoc to understand what this interestingness gradient is? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, I don't think there's been, like in Pick Breeder, for example, an explicit analysis of this question. Um, but I can tell you that um, the, the overall observation, you know, that people are uh, basically collecting things that are interesting or have potential is what motivated the novelty search algorithm basically taken from that idea as inspiration. But we certainly can look at individual cases. I mean, I have here, Do I have, um, I actually have the, uh, the, the true sequence for your curiosity of how the, the car was discovered from the alien, so run it as an animation. And you can even see the moment sort of, that I saw the descent right there. This is when I started to realize I was getting a car. Um, and, you know, that was very interesting in that moment, but, you know, it's hard to say make some a general statement why it's interesting. It was interesting in, in that context because suddenly I realized that this could lead to a car. Um, but sometimes it's interesting just because you haven't seen that kind of symmetry before there's a new regularity. I think regularity is, is a very uh, important part of it. You know, people like regularities. Um, so if you find a new kind of asymmetry, a new kind of regularity, a four-way symmetry rather than a two-way symmetry, you have a sense that potential has been opened up now. You can now exploit that new kind of symmetry. Uh, but generally a very interesting um, question that's hard to, to, to analyze in a simple way. Over yeah. there. I have two questions, and they're connected. What have we discovered using this sort of modern processes, theories, items? Have you discovered, and how easy do you find it to convince uh, funding committees to provide money for this sort of research? Right, right. Um, well, <laughs> that's, that's that is that is a, a hard question. Um, you know, what what we've discovered, you know, through novelty search. And novelty search is an algorithm that came out of this. So, in one sense, novelty search is a discovery because. The algorithm, as a result of, of uh, the observations in victory, um, but novelty search itself has discovered, for example, you know the things that I showed you, like maze navigators, biped walkers, um, various kinds of simulated creatures, and so forth. Um, you can go through the literature on novelty search. Uh, I showed earlier at the end that uh, there is a novelty search uh, page, um, and at that page you can see. Uh, a lot of references of things that have been done with knowledge search, So here at this knowledge Search users page, so you can find things but I would say more more generally I mean in terms of you know uh, what is this what has been discovered because of this um, and funding agencies this is a tough sell there's no doubt I mean how do you go to a funding agency and say you know my whole purpose here is to have no uh, objective and not tell you what I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah, no, this really is a problem with funding agencies. Um, I mean, the first thing you get back, which I have literally received back from the funding agency, is that, you know, well, we don't really know what this is going to achieve. Well, duh. <laughs> I mean, that's my point. Um, but, you know, this is, I think it's a really, obviously, I would think this, but I think this is a really big problem that we're incapable of funding this kind of thing. I mean, you know, we, we have to have some promise that you're gonna get X out of it, or else we're unable to put some kind of uh, resources behind it. Um, and yet the whole stream of research is basically about how that's not the right way to do things. You have a bit of a, a paradox, a catch-22 here. Um, so yeah, this is a tough sell. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you know any funny sources. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yes, fine. It's just a comment actually. Your, 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 your description of this reminds me of some people who are much better at getting graphs than I am. Yeah. They say that what they do is they, they promise to do something that they've nearly finished. And then yeah. they use the rest of the money to muck around and figure out what the next round's going to be. They're going right. to promise to almost have, they'll almost have done. Right, so they right, actually right. deliberately make sure they have time to mess around. Yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, it's, it's like, we're you know, at some level, implicitly, we understand that there has to be that room. Um, but we pretend and play the game as if that's not how we're running it. Um, which is which is unfortunate that we can't just acknowledge um, that sometimes we should do things because they're interesting, and you know there's nothing there's no shame in that. I think to say that you know, I think we should do something that's interesting, like it, it makes people uncomfortable because it suggests maybe that you know you're not going to use your brain or something or like how, who is going to be held accountable for this? Where's the authority figure that's going to you know, certify that this thing is, really is interesting? We need some objective measure. But I would say, I mean, if you've got the world's greatest scientists sitting on a panel. The the one thing that they should be able to tell you is whether something is interesting. The fact that we do not allow them to do that, I mean, it says something about the level of trust we have in our greatest in our greatest thinkers. We basically think they can't think at all. I mean, we say that the only thing that we allow people to do is assess whether an objective has been achieved, some measure. So it basically, precludes entirely the ability for us to allow people to just say, is this interesting or is this not interesting, and that is a good enough reason you know, to pursue this. There's one here, and one that. Yeah, thanks very I was well, just, just making notes as you were talking and, and the stepping stone is obviously very clear but it seems to me that discovery is synonymous with arrival the and then what is discovery? And discovery to me means it has meaning but meaning is hard to define. We I mean, yeah. talk about the car, but if you flip the car upside down, that wouldn't have meaning to me. Be on the down around, say, so that's a car. Yeah. So there's this a priori resonance that we seem to have to say, yes, we've discovered something, because any one of those steps you could argue is discovery, even though yeah. it looks like random dots. So what like your comment on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good philosophical point. Um, I mean, basically, what I think you're saying is, is that in all of this, there has to be some ingredient of subjectivity in order for us to even begin to have this discussion. You know, I mean, I'm I'm beginning from the assumption that the skull and the car and these things are interesting discoveries. You know, and if we start debating about that and we don't agree on that then we can't have the discussion, you know, because you would say, well, they're just one of any arbitrary point that exists out there. You know, why should I care about those? And my claim is that it's just a priori obvious that these are interesting discoveries, and you have to accept that. Um, and so, in some sense, I'm being not being very objective you know, in my argument. But that sort of makes sense because ultimately I'm arguing against objectives. So to begin to actually think about what it is that we want to discover—not how you know the performance measure of things that we discover—but what we want, what actually we want as human beings to discover, of course, is ultimately subjective. You know, and the fact that we want things that perform well is ultimately subjective. It's the fact that we want those that's subjective, not the performance itself. So I mean, I think that I would try to urge everyone to accept that subjectivity is fair ground for discussion. We can talk about subjective things, and we should, we don't talk about things of discovery. Yes, sir. Um, I don't know how much of this is entirely your work versus stepping stones that would have picked up from other people, mm-hmm. but would you say that you discovered um, all this new way of perceiving search and innovation by searching for it, and if not how? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it puts me in a good, good position to, to emphasize my theory. I mean, because no, I wasn't looking, I certainly was not looking for novelty search. I wouldn't mean, have I, I thought of anything like this. Where does novelty search come from? I mean, where does the algorithm come from? It comes from Pick Now, why did we create Pick PicReader? So, Pick is basically the stepping stone that led to novelty search. So, why did we create Pick Well, I mean, Pick is another one of those things that's hard to get funding for. Um, you know, because you say, well, we're going to have this site, and people are going to evolve images. And, and, and you know, the question: well, What is the purpose of this? What is the objective? You know, are you looking for skulls, and why would we? <laughs> the crystal so, skulls. And I literally got comments back when I tried to propose a picture that were just like that. It said, dude, "I actually had a comment from NSF that said nothing good will ever come of this system."
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so I mean, it, it's still sort of I mean, people can judge whether there's something good came of it or not, but. Why I thought we should do it was not because I thought that there would be some pretty pictures, but because I was sure that a lot of interesting stuff would come out of it. You know, and not, I don't mean the pictures themselves, but I mean the process that would result. You know, when once we sort of release all of these users, hundreds of people in this evolving <laughs> system of discovery, with branching, something is going to happen that's really interesting. I don't know what it is, but I'm pretty sure something interesting will happen, and we will learn about innovation from that. And so I didn't know what it, what it was going to be, and so I did something I did not have an objective, um, but and I did it because it was interesting. Right? I, I should say I did, but we did, it. you know, me and my team did Pick reader because it was interesting. I said we have to do this. It's so interesting. I don't know what's going to happen. It was something cool. So it fits exactly with you know sort of the idea here. And then the observation of how people were making discoveries led to novelty search, and so in sense sense as exactly you know this prototypical kind of serendipity completely unexpected but completely confirms the initial intuition that we should build pickreader because if we hadn't done that there wouldn't be a novelty search algorithm but there would never have been a novelty search algorithm if we were trying to create novelty search whatever that would actually mean um, you know sort of like if we we're trying to create the ideal optimization algorithm, we we're going to create the greatest optimization algorithm in the world you would not build novelty search um, so yeah the, the whole story the meta story behind where all this comes from is consistent with the story itself, you know, that basically um, following the scent of interestingness ultimately is what leads to the most interesting discoveries like this really strange algorithm rather than actually having some kind of specific objective in mind. there and then... Yeah, so maybe you suggest, without adapt to maybe you suggest following the brain of interestingness. Yeah. Maybe an that this embarrasses, this whole concept embarrasses the objective function you're not maybe piggybacking just on this very complex objective function that at any anyway. So it's really more of an environment against single objective rather than yeah. really complex objectives? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A good a good question, I mean, is it could we could we surmise that maybe what's going on in Pip is just that human beings do have objective functions and they're just like incredibly powerful. And that's really what's going on. Um, but you know I would say that the evidence the evidence Uh, Works against that, if that's your hypothesis. Um, I mean, and one of the most damning pieces of evidence, I think, is if you look at the the stepping stones. I mean, I can't, it 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 is inconceivable to me that the people who created these stepping stones were thinking about these objectives. I mean, I know in my case, of course, with the car, I mean, I was the one doing it, so I know I wasn't thinking about cars. But this is impossible. It's not that there's some. An incredible genius who understands CPPN space, who sort of knew that you know, just to get through the egg with the hat, then eventually get to my picture, um, it's simply just not the way things are working. So, in aggregate, that cannot be the explanation for all these discoveries. Now, some individual may have particular insight into CPPNs, so like like I do, because I've played with it so much. And so, like me personally, I can actually, I think I could get to a face from scratch pretty reliably, some kind of face-like thing. Because I've seen so many examples that I kind of know what the stepping stones are like. Um, but this is a very specific case, and it's based on experience with the search space, like a, a very unusual amount of experience and so forth. So there's no way anybody has sort of a global concept of these astronomically complex search spaces. Because that's what pickbreeder space is, is astronomically complex and space is simple compared to the kind of spaces that, you know, the human innovation is dealing with. You know, real inventions and stuff like that. Um, So I think that there's there's no way that human beings are just sort of using some incredibly omnipotent kind of objective function uh, to get where we want to go. It's all about stepping stone collection. Um, And the people who are really smart are the people who think about where we are, what stepping stone we're currently on, and can then see where this connects in the future, the next stepping stone away. And I think that's where people are very talented, not generally in objective optimization. Yes, um, I think so. it's terribly really interesting this uh, search algorithm. If you may, the, uh, the main problem is you get to the target at, at quite a reasonable timeline. However, well, the actual search algorithm doesn't know there's a target there. You yeah. can basically hit it. Um, yeah. And you know, it's like Jupiter up there. There's, there's, yes, it's a globe. It's particularly interesting because you've got a priority knowledge of, of what Jupiter looks like, and there's some correlation there. That suddenly, like, yes, that target actually correlates with something outside of your search space. Um, but you know, defining your target, defining when you actually hit that um, yeah. you know, that point of of interest, I think is something that's. So yeah, it's, it's so you're saying it's, it's poorly defined when there's been a success, um, and yeah, I, I mean I would agree with that it's poorly defined. I, I don't think though that that um, takes away from any of the lesson that I'm that I'm trying to convey. But this is a fact that is true: is that you know in general you know you just look, talk about a space of all possibilities, which points in that space matter to us, you know. I mean, I can't tell you that. I don't even know what the points even are in any cases, a priori. Um, and yet, uh, what, uh, I still think that, that if you get too distracted by that question, it can cause you to dismiss all of this because, you know, you start to worry about definitions. You know, I need to formalize when I've actually found what I want. And I want to get back to that. That's my security blanket, basically. It's this objective because it tells me when I'm a success and I need someone to tell me when I'm a success. And, you know, what I'd say is you don't need that. We don't need to define when success happens. We know it when we see it. There's absolutely no problem with that in practice. Um, you know, it's not like there's a huge debate right now whether the iPad is a good idea or not. Formally speaking, you know, let, we need to know. Is it really a good invention? You know, let's let's have a discussion. There's no need to discuss it. Clearly it's a good idea. Um, and people vote with their feet. Um, and I would claim the same things about this. Once again, I making completely subjective claims here. But... these are really cool discoveries I don't have the formal argument for why they're cool discoveries but I think it's just obvious and evident that they are good discoveries Um, but yeah so we would not want to get too distracted in in the truth of what you're saying because it is true and so but when you know you you look at something like knowledge search and actually solves the maze you might be worried in practice that like how would we then know that that actually mattered at that point like what algorithm would we run in order to pull out the things that actually matter and that is a problem in practice. I mean, something else obviously has to scan the discoveries and then say which discoveries you actually care about. I mean, if there's a completely automated algorithm in the background. In the maze, it's easy because we, we just happen to know we're interested in things that get to the maze. So we can just say, well, of all the novel discoveries, which ones solve the maze? And so there's no problem there. But in, in other domains, like when we, if you run novelty search, like we run it, for example, on, um, on just generating interesting creatures, like different morphologies and different ambulation uh, strategies. And then, you know, you, you get this archive out of novelty search of just creatures that were novel. And you're not even sure what, what do you want these creatures to be doing. Um, and so really, you know, you end up just basically browsing the archive, and sort of looking for what are the things from my perspective that, that okay, they were all novel, but maybe not everything that was novel is interesting to me. So I end up having to look at it. Um, but I mean, in practice, I think you can put some filters in. You know, I'm not interested in creatures that do nothing, for example. So that eliminates a whole bunch of things. And, and so I don't think this is really a huge practical problem, but it's, it's, a, it's an interesting philosophical issue. You know, what is actually interesting out there in the space and how do I know when I actually encounter something like that? Okay. So it seems to on the last side the practitioner, yeah you an anti-entropic function where you're looking at you put accumulating information, but that it, it's got the subjective quality of that information there. So this is the way actually evolving pleasing. So you are trans into um, of the digital mathematical world and then you, you've got access into the human subjective experience saying this is a very interesting, this is meaningful and you, know, you see yourself, as the more you get more information you in the way. Right. So it's sort of um, an anti-entropic, you're actually in building information, but you've got the human element there yeah. to publish it. Yeah, yeah, you have yeah, the human element. Yeah, um, yeah, this is true. I mean, that there's, I, I mean, it's certainly, this, you're not seeing entropy here. I mean, you're seeing increasing organization. I mean, if you go back to, you know, where things begin, like it, it's clearly very much less organized um, in these kinds of, uh, uh, you know, early start, early starting situations, and then this leads to these very organized type of pictures that have regularities and symmetries and so forth. Um, and um, this is what this type of process produces. I mean, I think that goes hand in hand with these non-objective processes, that they will all, all ultimately accumulate information. And information is basically, uh, you know, encoded in regularities. Um, regularities are what define the things that we find interesting. In the world. Um, there's, there's very few things that are interesting that have no regularity at all, if any, um, because those are basically just chaotic. So yes, I think that that's one way to, to think about you know the nature of these processes is basically information accumulators, or if you want to call them anti-entropic. Um, to make an extreme example of it, um, I think if you look at evolution on Earth, you can look at it that way. Um, you know, evolution on Earth um, often it's thought of as survival of the fittest competition, but look at it another way. Think about it as an information accumulator. I mean. As things become more complex, and I'm claiming that there's no ultimate goal of evolution, so it's not trying to create any particular thing in that sense. So as things become more complex, they're basically uh, taking information about what? About the universe and incorporating it into the DNA. And so we are, in some ways, like an encyclopedia of information about what's in our universe. And we have eyes because, you know, there are electromagnetic waves. And we have ears because there are vibrations in the atmosphere. And we have legs because there's gravity and so forth. And at the stage of human evolution, it's gotten to be so extreme that in our physiology is encoded things like how many planets are in the solar system, um, which of course is something gained over our lifetime, but we're built to gain that over our lifetime. And so I would say that anything that accumulates information over long periods of time, just because it's doing new stuff, will ultimately start to incorporate things like that. And basically everything that's created becomes an encyclopedia of the things that are possible in the physical universe. And it's just the same thing you're seeing in Pickbreeder, Is that you know Pick is, in some sense, you know basically an encyclopedia of things in, in our universe, the human mind. Because basically this is happening. In, I mean, the, the space here is the human mind. Um, this is the environment, if you will, is the human mind where these things are evolving. And so of course it's a mirror, basically, just pointing back at us the things that are in our minds. Um, and so information will increase. I think it's really interesting to think about processes of this type, non-objective processes, in this way. One of of can you uh, combine novelty search with um, objective search? For instance, when you get close to something like a car, you can then switch to objective search to actually hone in on exactly what you want. Yeah, yeah. again when you get close to yeah. yeah, That's a very that's a common question and a common idea um, in 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 the area in the, the research area in which. Uh, people have been looking at novel searches in some area of evolutionary computations. A lot of people said, "Great idea," but I don't want to give up give up my security blanket. I, mean, I want my objective back. And so, can I somehow get them together and make this hybrid thing where I get the best of both worlds? Um, and they, I think the answer to that is, is subtle. Because, to some extent, yes, you can help in certain situations. This is true. Um, But in the most extreme situations, no, it won't help. Because the problem is that if you have a false compass, it doesn't matter how you hybridize it. It's still a false compass. So, you know, if your map tells you the north is south, and then you say, well, you know, sometimes I'll follow the map. But sometimes I'll just do random stuff. And then you end up actually getting where you want to go. It's still no thanks to your map. It's entirely because of the random moves that you made. Your map is not the reason that you got there. So, you know, a false compass is a false compass. You can't fix it by adding diversity on top of it. But if the problem is modest enough, then actually they, they may become synergistic. You know, if there's just a small enough amount of deception, then, you know, the they start to be synergistic because the, the objective does do what you said. It kind of pulls you towards the thing near the end, and otherwise the novelty bounces you out of those traps. And so you can get something in practice that seems to work. But I think in the long run, it's not a good solution because it overestimates the amount of advantage we can get out of hybridizing these things. Um, And so, I mean, I think that what you can do, what what does make sense is once you get near something, it does make sense to start being objective. But the question is how do you know when you're near something, or what do you do before that? I mean, clearly, but once I get within that valence of something, it's just a very good idea to do objective optimization. You no longer want to waste your time with novelty. Um, But the problem is that the the hard part of life is the part before that. Um, And that's where the objective is the false compass. All right. Thank you very much for coming.